Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We would love for you to join in our conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you have a question, email or text us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. Now here's your host, pastor, author, and Bible teacher, Scott Richards, along with his right-hand man, Sean. Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you. Welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope for those of you happening across our podcast or broadcast, depending on... Uh, how you're accessing us here today. It's our daily journey through God's Word. One question at the heart at a time, and that's where you come in. It is your questions on the Word of God that determine the content of each and every edition of A Reason for Hope. So if uh, you've got a question on the Bible, uh, maybe a passage or two you'd like to explore a little bit more up close and personally, we'd love to be able to help you with that. Uh, If uh, perhaps you'd like to uh, discover how to apply the Word of God uh, in the current circumstances you find yourself in, uh, let us know what's going on in your life. We'd love to share with you those time-tested truths we find in the Word and the awesome difference they can make within your life. Uh, Tough questions regarding the Christian faith, boy, they are certainly out there, especially these days. Uh, We would be more than happy to equip you to be able to give a reason for the hope that is within you with meekness and reverence, as the Bible enjoins us to do. Uh, The events of the day, and boy, do we have some events of the day uh, to deal with, or even the events of tomorrow through biblical prophecy and how sometimes one can actually lead to the other. Uh, We'll be happy to discuss any or all of those issues. Uh, Only one standard for the questions that we answer here on the broadcast. Just make sure that you've got a sincere question question and if you're looking for an answer straight from God's word we'll be happy to uh, answer that as the broadcast unfolds Uh, Sean how can people get those questions to us well if you are joining us online you're in luck we have options if you are joining us on our website calvarychristianfellowship.com you can click on the watch live tab in that purple bar at the top of the screen and you'll be directed to our page where we are streaming 24/7 ccftucson.online.church uh, we we're giving out that URL just for the sake of those yesterday we had a website hiccup wanted to make sure people don't get lost but this will be our primary ministry media meeting place If you want to send us your questions, obviously they can't ban us on our own platform. So if you want to join us there, note that is the main way of sending us your questions. And if we don't get to your question until the end of the broadcast and time continues moving on, despite our efforts to slow it and make the most of it, our email address is spelled out for you at the bottom of the screen. For those listening on Reach Radio or one of our radio affiliates, that is questionsforhope at gmail.com. Questions is plural. F-O-R is spelt F-O-R. And <laughs> hope is spelt as you'd expect. And it is at gmail.com. We'll be happy to receive your questions through either or both of those sites. But if you would prefer social media, YouTube is still on at A Reason for Hope. And Facebook is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. However, since we don't control when or why, we are taken down from those platforms. Our main ministry area wants to be on our website, which once again is Calvary Christian Fellowship. Dot com. Click on the Watch Live tab. You will be joining us at ccftucson.online.church. Also note, if you aren't joining us live, you will be given the immediate prior broadcast automatically and a countdown to the next broadcast so you can figure out where it fits into your respective time zone. We appreciate any and all participation on the broadcast as long as it involves sincere Bible questions. It is sincere. It is about the Bible, and it is asked in the form of a question. We have 
have received things that include none of those, and they have been disregarded. We've received things that have gotten two of those, and we've asked for clarification. But if you want to get our attention and our response, make sure all three are present. Okay. So, without further ado, and making the most of the time that we have, why don't we start off with a word of prayer? Absolutely. Lord, thank you that we have this opportunity to study your word here today and uh, to study in a way that impacts the lives of people who supply the questions. Lord, we pray for each and every person who's taking time out of their day to join us on uh, either the broadcast or on the uh, podcast. We pray that as your word goes out uh, literally all over the world, uh, you would use this to build up your people. You use it to draw people into a saving knowledge of you. Uh, Lord, uh, you would use this uh, time to reveal yourself for who you truly are, the true and living God who loves us and has revealed yourself to us in the person of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray that you would be glorified, Father, through uh, the accurate teaching of your word spoken in truth and love. In Jesus' name, amen. That is true. Now, speaking of that book, there is an observation made in the Old Testament, specifically in the prophet Isaiah, who said, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. While it isn't as, I guess, phrased as accurately as we'd like it to today, it is still expressed because we had a recent incident of where evil was indeed expressed, but the powers that be, the, uh, I guess, uh, precursors to the ministry, of truth. They tried to found it, but it lasted just about as much as other sources of misinformation and censorship. I'll let you fill in the gaps. But uh, the uh, individual who was challenging this says, well, we don't really like that word evil. Yeah, you know, it was a fascinating conversation that happened earlier in the day. Texas Governor Greg Abbott, we were obviously referring to the tragic events that have happened in Texas over the last couple of days. Uh, we don't uh, mention the names of individuals who uh, perpetrate these kind of events uh, just as a matter of policy. But uh, 19 school children, uh, a grandmother, a uh, school teacher uh, lost their lives uh, when one individual acted out in an evil manner. Now, Greg Abbott at his press conference used that term evil, and it was uh, fascinating for me on a couple of different levels. First of all, uh, as many of you know, before I went into the ministry, I worked in radio and television news and uh, had training as a journalist. And uh, I realized that uh, that was a number of years ago, and evidently uh, the ethics and the ethos of journalism have changed quite a bit. But it was fascinating that when Governor Abbott used the term evil to describe what this mass shooter had done, uh, one of the reporters present said, I'm really having a hard time with your use of the term evil here. Isn't that simplistic? Well, a couple of things really hit me right off the top on all of that. Uh, If uh, I had... Uh, during my uh, career as a reporter, has used the word I or said, I'm really having a hard time with this, uh, injecting an editorial uh, bent to a particular question that I was asking. Uh, the, the moment I got back to the studio, I'm sure the news director would have read me the riot act because back then uh, the standard was uh, we really don't care what you think or how you feel, what we care about is uh, asking questions of the individuals that are involved, the actual newsmakers. You are not the story. Make sure you understand that. Well, that used to be uh, the way things went, I guess. 
that is not, in fact, uh, the case any longer uh, because uh, this individual said that, uh, you know, isn't that simplistic? Aren't there uh, mental health issues and so on that are involved here? And so on a, a professional level, I was taken aback by how far things have deteriorated from that standard of not making yourself uh, the the uh, subject of uh, the uh, the story and uh, putting your two cents worth into a comment uh, really wasn't anything we used to do, uh, or at least we were strongly cautioned against it. But the other thing that really hit me was this, uh, the response to all of that, the, uh, the seeming uh, revulsion at the idea that someone would use the term evil to describe the behavior here. Uh, Greg Abbott uh, responded by saying, well, if you can show me someone who did uh, something worse than what this particular person has done, uh, taking the lives of 19 school children uh, violently, and, uh, you know, define that as a greater evil, I'll be happy to listen to uh, your suggestion. Uh, I thought it was uh, great that Governor Abbott stuck to his guns and refused to uh, back down from characterizing something like this as evil. It is straight up evil. But where uh, does this revulsion that we have against using terms like evil, we'd much rather use the term disturbed. We'd much rather use the term, uh, you know, uh, mentally uh, imbalanced uh, to describe these kind of events. Well, I I think there's a prophetic aspect to all of this that we need to uh, pay attention to and a theological aspect to it all. Uh, You know, the prophetic side of an event like the one that uh, went down in Texas uh, certainly uh, resonates with our hearts, but it certainly is something that has been revealed to us in the Word of God. I can't help but think about a prophecy in Scripture we find in the book of Second Timothy, chapter 3, where we are told, But know this, in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away. Well, you know, here I think we've seen a pretty uh, accurate blow-by-blow description of uh, what the uh, cultural atmosphere that we live in is all about, and it seems to be becoming uh, more and more pronounced all these times. Now, there's been a a lot of conversations about gun control and uh, passing legislation and uh, trying to solve these things through external means, but uh, the the real interesting aspect uh, of this to me, Sean, has been this whole discussion of what evil is all about and why people find it uh, so distasteful that the term evil is used to, to uh, characterize situations like this. I think uh, there's a pretty direct answer uh, from the scripture in all of this. In the Gospel of John, uh, we are told regarding those who know God and those who don't know God that this really does come down to a question of light versus darkness and good versus evil. No less a person than Jesus said this. He who believes in God's Son is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. 
For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they've been done in God. So, you know, we really do discover something. First of all, what we believe and what we choose not to believe about God really matters. Now, there are people out there saying, well, not every person that uh, commits crimes like this uh, rejects God. We really have no idea, uh, you know, the religious sensibilities of the uh, person who is the perpetrator there, but certainly some do. I think of the Columbine massacre, and uh, that was definitely motivated by, I guess, what we would call a nihilistic view uh, of this world, that there is no God out there and that those who believe in God really are the problem. And that we have eyewitness testimonies of them specifically calling out, searching for, and targeting and executing Christians. Yeah. So, you know, we really don't know where this person is coming from. But suffice it to say, an individual like this is behaving in an evil manner. And I don't really think uh, we need to uh, modify that by saying, oh, well, you don't know uh, what kind of a upbringing this had. There's already been some posts uh, on uh, social media saying, well, he came from a situation where he was bullied. Well, I don't know anybody in this world who uh, went through junior high who couldn't uh, characterize some of that as being bullied, but that certainly doesn't give you license uh, to run out and take out the the lives of 19 school children, your grandmother and a teacher. Uh, you know, well, you know, maybe uh, you know he had mental issues. Well, that's possible, uh, but uh, certainly he was in uh, enough of a clear frame of mind. Uh, to be able to purchase automatic weapons and to put on body armor and uh, to seek out and stalk and kill his grandmother, even announcing that he was going to do that on social media a couple of days ago. Uh, This is definitely a premeditated act. It wasn't just like this person had gone uh, completely beside themselves. They were certainly in control of their faculties there. And when an individual decides to exercise moral agency, that is to exercise their free will in a way that is contrary to what we would call good in this world, then we are left with uh, the only uh, alternative, and that is that we are dealing with evil. Uh, You know, the scripture tells us that we have to be very careful uh, about the impact that evil has upon our lives. In the book of Matthew chapter 12, 24 and verse 12, Jesus, speaking about the last days, said that because lawlessness will increase, the love of most will grow cold. So the challenge, I think, for us as believers in Christ is to understand that these sort of things are not to be unexpected in this fallen world. Uh, But uh, the answer to these things is not to become reactive or to point fingers at uh, other people or get caught up in uh, the politicizing of these events. I'm certain uh, that uh, the politicians will do a good enough job of that. But, Sean, when something like this happens that is evil, uh, how can we as Christians turn the conversation around to something that is more positive, that is pointing people to their need for a savior? 
Well, first, we need to understand internally there needs to be a guard and a check against cynicism because, as Jesus stated in Matthew chapter 24, because lawlessness will abound, this is in verse 12, the love of many will grow cold. As these days get darker, we're going to not only see that, but also have the risk of being jaded by it to give up on the world and to just basically let it run to its own devices. Now, the proactive step that we need to take, and I think there is an individual on YouTube, his name is John McRae, but his username is What Do You Meme? Uh, he produced a video pr uh, sharing his thoughts in this matter and made a very careful emphasis that we can't control the majority of the world's thoughts, intents, and even actions. We can't legislate ourselves into a corner and either A, set ourselves up for tyranny like everyone else who's disarmed themselves has in history, nor is it wise to basically go free reign and say that politicians can fix the problem. We released a video on YouTube giving a summation of how we talked about that last week. Any politician that promises a utopia through their efforts is misguided, is lying, is, and I quote, antichrist. So what is the issue? Well, if hope in man is antichrist, then hope in Christ is Christ. Right. And this is the key. What we have the opportunity to do every single day is to be different, to be the exception rather than the rule. If this kid was bullied and he obviously made his decisions with how to process and live in light of that abuse, we can't change the past. We can't even necessarily change the future of those who will also respond in the same way. But we can alter the present. And how is that? By not being the bully, by not being the person who is of a negative influence on someone else's life. Life, and we mean negative as in objectively not Christian. When people see the love of Jesus Christ, they have the opportunity to see not a bully. When they see the love of Jesus Christ, they have the opportunity to see that there are people out there that can actually care about them. The problem is that even we as Christians who have the Holy Spirit, if we don't ask for it, won't have the capacity to. You go on the internet, it is so easy to get caught up in the bitterness and the I guess, just to repeat the word, the cynicism, the cold-heartedness that's defining the spirit of the age. Instead, what we need to do is ask every single day, Lord, can I be a positive influence to somebody? Because if the world is sane, well, look at the way this kid was treated. All you can say in response is, well, I didn't treat that kid that way. I don't treat people that way. That's your contribution to the problem, which is, by the way, a solution. If, on the other hand, you'd say, no, we got to vote in people that will take away all the guns so that evil people can only use knives. Well, we see how well that works in Britain. Well, we got to vote in people that will allow all the teachers to be armed. Great. So when a teacher decides to go after their students, evil is universal. We need to make sure we're not creating bigger problems instead of solutions. The only thing that we can do that is objective, that is productive, that is meaningful, is to say, God, how can I show your heart to somebody here today? I want to combat evil, and that is what, uh, through what? Overcoming it with, the book of Romans says, right. good. good. So, who is good? Well, Jesus says there is none good but one, that is God. And he was saying that to point people to himself. If we have someone better to offer people, someone better to model to others, someone better to share with people, then Jesus Christ, then as our beloved mentor and now glorified brother in the Lord Romain once said, you need to share him. Till yeah. then, stick to the Lord. Exactly. And that's all they need to say on that. I, I think so. So any other questions you have uh, on these kind of events? And, you know, I think one of the things that we really need to keep in mind is that when these kind of conversations come up, 
uh, you know, people say, well, where is God when these sort of things happen? Uh, you know, we need to understand that God has given to all of us uh, free uh, moral agency uh, and that God uh, does uh, expect us uh, to use our free moral agency in a way that is in harmony with his truth, with his goodness, with his moral character. When we decide to take things into our own hands uh, and operate apart from God's moral standards, uh, we need to realize that uh, the Bible says that uh, these sort of things are the way of death. There's a way that seems right to a man, the book of Proverbs says, but the end thereof is death. And so when we reject God and we reject his standards and live our lives accordingly, uh, sooner or later in ways large and small, these sort of things come up. Uh, I can recall a, uh, a, a, quote, uh, a quotation uh, from, uh, I think it was uh, James Russell Lowell, who uh, once said that uh, millions of self-centered rather than God-centered actions uh, each and every day may be rightly understood to be destroying this world. And so when it comes to moral evil, it's easy to point at a person that does something extraordinary and, and vicious and brutal like what happened in Texas. But when we take a look at it, we've all got a problem with moral evil. That's why Jesus had to come and die for us. That's why he was born of a virgin. That's why he lived a sinless life. That's uh, why he took that sinless life and willingly died in our place under the penalty that was due us for our own moral evil. We can't say that moral evil is a problem out there just because it's manifested in, in more brutal and horrific ways. It really is a problem inside each of us. But the Bible tells us that God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The main focus uh, we should have, especially in times like these, is to tell people, yeah, we've all got a sin problem, and sooner or later we're going to stand before a holy God and give an account for how we've broken his commands. Uh, heaven is only for perfect people. God cannot allow morally defective people and evil people into heaven, even if it's just a little bit. And so the only way that we can get into heaven is to be forgiven. And that's why Jesus died. And that's why he rose from the dead so that we could know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God accepts his sacrifice on our behalf. Have you given your life to Jesus? Have you asked him to forgive you? If you have asked him to forgive you, are you taking that message of forgiveness and reconciliation and grace to those who are on the outside in looking at a relationship with him? Because as we can see from these kind of horrific events that go on, nobody uh, got up that morning in uh, Texas and thought something horrible like this was going to happen. Uh, none of us have any guarantees in life except for this. It is given to man once to die, and after that comes the judgment. How are you going to face that judgment? Are you going to face it with the forgiveness of Christ? Or are you going to try to, well, say, well, I think I'm a pretty good person, or I, I think I could be good without God. Uh, good luck uh, trying to face a holy God who knows you inside and out on that day. But the wonderful thing is Jesus died for you personally. Uh, we are told that, uh, that uh, again, uh, uh, that God uh, demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners at our worst, Christ died for us. So that's the message I think we need to share.
And speaking of things that need to be shared, I'll leave the name out because this is something that needs to be addressed very firmly. Uh, A question was asked regarding, did God ever give Satan a chance to ask for forgiveness after he got prideful and said no? This question is asked in a lot of different ways, and I think it brings up another issue that's at the heart of not the problem we're addressing on the broadcast today, but the mindset behind those who are the most unproductive in reacting to it. The assumption that people are based basically good, that everything is basically good, that we can take for granted the nature of God in all of us, and therefore when evil takes place, it's not the rule, it's the exception. Well, why wouldn't God allow Satan to be forgiven? After all, when I sin, I want to be forgiven, so why wouldn't Satan be any different? There's two reasons why we need to be very cautious of this mindset of the basically good. According to the Bible, that's a source I consider an authority on meta-ethics, there is none good, no, not one. There is none who seeks after God. We are all going astray. We are all given to our own devices. This is all, by the way, in the book of Romans chapter 3 in this diatribe, quoting the Old Testament. If we understand that apart from God, nothing good is found in us. That apart from the work of God in our hearts, nothing good dwells. Paul the Apostle himself said in the book of Romans chapter 7. Then we won't deceive ourselves into this false philosophy that people will naturally be altruistic. People will naturally want to do the right thing. You look at the United States toilet paper riots the moment that they thought there'd be a shortage (laughs) and you can find exactly the opposite being demonstrated in grocery stores. You can look at... uh, Well, I won't get into other examples, but just note the point. When we're talking about this issue of Satan uh, basically being given the short end of the stick, a raw deal by God, being set up to fail, there's a reason why the author of Hebrews in chapter 2 said that God does not give aid to angels, but does give aid to the seed of Abraham. And there are two reasons. First of all, in the book of Luke, chapter 12, Jesus made an interesting observation as the punchline to a very interesting parable. It's not relevant for the time being, but the point being made was this to him whom much is given much Much shall be required if you have a working knowledge of god that is on par with an angel you know more than any other human being that has ever existed short of heavenly glory even moses and yes even the apostles So noting the point that's being made here, if given all of that revelation, all of that understanding of the goodness of God, and then out of pride to say no, what possible way could God redeem you? The answer is none. And why? Because they're being held accountable to the ultimate good. And thus, the ultimate rejection of that good has eternal consequences. The second reason we need to understand this as well is the taking for granted of the desire for repentance. That when I want to be forgiven, when I even feel that nastiness in me towards my sin, I need to understand that's not something natural to humanity. That's not what everyone feels across the globe. That is a gift from God. That is an outright miracle because without the spirit of God, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 3, none of us would even see our need for salvation. The very act of conviction is intervention on God's part. So for us to then ask the question, why didn't God intervene in Satan's heart to try to draw him back? 
He had been doing that every single day of his existence until he rejected the ultimate good. And it's the same reason why when we see people commit evil acts, why is it that God would allow this to happen? Well, you A, don't know what was going on behind the scenes. B, you don't know the things that he has prevented because they never did. And C, the things that were allowed are what will be held morally accountable for. There will be justice. That's another thing that needs to be considered. But none of this should surprise us. If we read into the Bible this Antichrist philosophy, and I mean that, that people can sort out their own problems, that people can lead themselves back to God from the inside out, the gospel is meaningless. But if on the other hand we look at Satan as the paragon and say someone who rejected God and saw that as the ultimate result, when I do it every single day that God would reach out to me in my ignorance and reach out not only to not destroy me, but to restore me, that is grace, that is mercy, that is undeserved favor. If I don't have a proper understanding of that, then I'm going to end up down one of two very dangerous routes. I'm going to either become entitled to the goodness of God and then be shocked when it's not demonstrated 24-7, or I'm going to assume the goodness of God in its absence and then hold him accountable for that. And the best way to do that is to say, where was God when this was happening? As if we shouldn't expect these things happening more often in a world totally devoid from and separate from him. Understand how serious this is and understand why we're we're uh, why I'm being so firm. I won't hold this on you unless you want to take a shot at it. The point being made is this. Do not, do not allow or entertain this mindset that people are basically good. The fallenness and depravity of man is essential if the gospel is going to mean anything. Otherwise, it's just going to lead us to either entitlement or self-deception. And I've seen people become atheists over this. That's why I'm treating it so harshly, and that's why I don't want that for you. So, with that being said, um, here's a question, if you have anything else. No, I think that's great. A question from Monica, who was wondering what the J-U-B Bible was, and if it's scripture sound. Uh, J-U-B is short for Jubilee, right. but uh, when it comes to b- good Bible translations, what's generally our metric? Yeah, well, what uh, what we look for uh, first and foremost uh, in a Bible translation is just that. I mean, there's two schools of thought as far as uh, what passes for Bible translations these days. Uh, some will uh, uh, advocate uh, what is called a word-for-word translation. That is an attempt to uh, stick as close as possible to what the uh, original language had to say. Uh, others will opt for dynamic equivalence. That is a thought-for-thought translation that makes it a little bit easier on a modern reader to be able to flow through a particular uh, section of Scripture. As far as the Jubilee uh, Bible translation uh, is concerned, uh, it does attempt to be a word-for-word translation. Maybe the best way to uh, discover uh, exactly uh, how beneficial it it all is, and and it it is a, a translation that tends to move in the direction of what's known as the Hebrew Roots Movement, uh, trying to especially emphasize the nuance and the meaning of words in the Hebrew. You know, maybe the best way, Monica, to evaluate it uh, would be to take a look at a translation that you know and that you trust. You have become convinced that it is a good and accurate and a readable translation. And compare uh, a number of passages uh, in, the, in the Word. The, the ones that I think uh, have to do 
uh, with uh, the the non-negotiables, if you will, uh, of the faith. When a new Bible translation comes out, uh, one of the first things that I do personally is to go to Ephesians chapter 2 and see how it renders, say, for instance, the first 10 verses in Hebrews chapter 2, because there, or I should say in Ephesians chapter 2, because there we see a beautiful picture of what salvation is all about. And there are so many of the essentials of the Christian life culminating in, for it is by grace that you've been saved, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. I always uh, try to take a look at how they render that. I also will take a look at the first chapter of the Gospel of John and see how they render, say, for instance, the first 18 verses there in John chapter 1, because that's going to give you a good idea of how these uh, translators are uh, portraying the person of Jesus, the mission of Jesus, and so on. So salvation, the person and mission of Jesus. If I want to take a look, (coughs) for instance, at the Old Testament, oftentimes I will take a look at how uh, they rendered Genesis chapters 1 and two and see uh, how true to the original that is Uh, psalm 23 is another great uh, uh, passage to take a look at as far as a a check to see just how accurate they're being with all that isaiah 53 uh, the prophecy of the suffering servant that was fulfilled in the person of jesus i think is also a good place to go so uh, whatever bible translation you're taking a look at if you're going to switch over uh you know uh, it's always good to be not a, a person with a critical attitude, but a critical consumer. Don't just uh, buy into it because someone says, oh, yeah, this is the latest and greatest, or, oh, yeah, this digs deeper into the word uh, than another. Uh, usually I found uh, when Bible translations make these kind of uh, claims, raise a little skepticism in me. Uh, you know, as you know, we tend to stick with the uh, New King James Version uh, of the Bible excellent readable translation word-for-word translation not only based on good manuscripts but i i love uh, the new king james uh, that i have the new king james uh, study bible put out by thomas nelson publishers because it not only gives you uh, the new king james rendering of that but it also allows you to take a look at how particular passages are rendered uh, in more uh, uh, recently discovered manuscripts than the Texas Receptus that the King James was based upon. So uh, anything you'd add to that? No, just make sure that the two goals of any Bible translation is that it's accessible and understandable to you and that it is actually accurate to the original translations, which uh, take her to leave it, but yeah, make and, sure that those are your standards. And, and just one thing I would uh, add, uh, you know, I would uh, just encourage you to have a translation that is used and taught uh, through from uh, the pulpit wherever you're going to church just makes it a lot easier uh, to uh, flow along with the message than going, whoa, you know, wait a minute, mine uh, renders that a little bit differently and so on. So um, that, that would be the only thing I'd add. All right. Uh, question from Robert who wants to know, regarding revival, do you guys see there being a huge revival before the church is taken in the rapture? So what he has sat on concerning leadership. He has heard many pastors and cringe prophets declare that there will be a huge revival before we go home i just don't want to have a lack of faith that this is the case is there any scripture to back up a huge revival um, none robert when it comes to the patterns of revival there's nothing in scripture that suggests at this time at this place or before this time many people at many times will come to the lord the only one we have that's kind of a reflection of that was at pentecost and that was at the beginning not the end right. uh, when it comes to the 
rate at which people get saved, the only one we can control as far as our relationship with God is us. Daily, we need to make sure that our lives are being renewed, revived into a saving relationship with God so that we're found ready at the time of the rapture. As far as uh, the majority of the world coming to a saving knowledge of Christ, I understand the intention behind it to see more people go to heaven than hey, not. Hey, we're all that. We're all over that. Absolutely. But I don't base my relationship with God or the impact of my relationship with God or even God's influence on this world based on numbers, but his impact on the one life that I can control. So make sure that when we're making any expectation for the end times, it's not looking for numbers. It's looking for the quality of those who already have. If the last person to get saved does so tonight and there's uh, not much more spoken of, then by all means, great, we're in heaven. If on the other hand, we still have more people to get saved and we see several worldwide um, revivals taking place, which we already see taking place, by the way, in Pakistan, China, and another nation as well. It's escaping me. I believe Nigeria. Yeah. As yeah. a result of the... Sub-Saharan pro- Africa. Yeah, yeah. the... No, oh, thank you. That yeah. was what I was thinking of. Yeah. Like, little Africa, where's yeah. that? Oh. Our, our friends in Uganda and Kenya who watch this broadcast would want you to know that. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, revivals are happening. But as far as the United States, no, there's nothing predicted. Uh, Modern-day prophets, I say cringe with impunity because that's not an authoritative source. If, on the other hand, we're going to look at Scripture, understand all we can expect from God is to do a new work in our hearts today. And if uh, people are dragged up, in the process, then that's just another blessing to add to what you've already been given, which is salvation, Robert. Make sure that's what your faith centered on, his promises towards you, and your opportunity to disciple others. Yeah, well, I think there's a positive and a negative as far as uh, having a revival sort of a mindset. Obviously, we want to see uh, a mass turning to God, and God has certainly done that down through time. Calvary Chapel, of which uh, we're part of the Fellowship of Churches, came out of the revival known as the Jesus Movement, where the Lord uh, used the conditions in the late 60s and early 70s uh, to uh, do a tremendous uh, move of God, uh, especially among young people that were promised so much uh, by the summer of love and uh, the hippie movement that uh, you could uh, we could build a utopia all by ourselves. We just uh, come on, people now smile on your brother, so to speak. Uh, the, the, the problem is uh, these nice sentiments and who isn't in favor of loving one another uh, impact fallen sinful nature. And uh, people were cynical. They were uh, burned out. They had seen individuals uh, use the altruism of the hippie movement to exploit other people. And then the message that uh, Jesus is the one that will give you the opportunity to be able to receive forgiveness personally, to be able to love people with a supernatural love. Uh, You know, that just caught on like wildfire. And so one of the reasons that we're here today is a result of that. So I'm not, uh, I I try not to be too jaded about the idea of, Lord, you know, do a a mighty work. Uh, Bring a lot of people to you. Boy, talk about a a jaded and cynical time that we live in right now where the love of Jesus is definitely something people need to hear about. Uh, We live in times like these. Uh, The only thing I would caution against is this. Uh, Sometimes people will pray for, you know, a mass move of God like this and pray for a mass move of God like this. And they're looking over the horizon and, and they say to themselves, oh, you know, God's just not moving or working in our day and age. Be really careful about that. Uh, Because, you know, for instance, in Romans chapter 11, uh, no less a spiritual individual named Elijah 
was so convinced that uh, there was no work of God going on in the midst. He thought he was the only prophet left. And God had to correct him and said, I've got 7,000 others in Israel who have not bowed the knee uh, to Baal. Uh, and so, you know, we, we have to be very careful because sometimes we just don't have all the information. Sometimes we can get discouraged if, uh, say, a promised revival or someone having the vision saying, oh, I saw all these people coming to know the Lord, uh, if it doesn't happen. The other thing is to realize that uh, as far as people coming to know the Lord, it is happening. As you mentioned, uh, boy, in China, we know tremendous things are happening. Pakistan, things are, are happening in Iran. According to our, our good friend uh, Joel Rosenberg, there's a tremendous turning of people uh, to Christ going on right now. Sub-Saharan Africa, and even here in the United States, you know, when people say, oh, God isn't just isn't moving anymore, people aren't getting saved like back during the Jesus movement. Well, I'd say, you know, if you want to see some evidence to the contrary, uh, boy, check into Greg Laurie's Harvest Crusades. Uh, you know, talk, talk about a, uh, a ministry that is just reaching uh, an awful lot of people. Franklin Graham's uh, Jesus Loves You crusades that are going on in Europe right now. Tremendous response to that. And thousands of people literally are coming to know the Lord at those times. So look those things up online. I think they'll find you'll find that encouraging that God really is doing a work. But like you said, Sean, I think the most important thing is this. Hey, if nobody else is going to be excited about Jesus, I'm going to be excited about Jesus. If no one else is going to be communicating the love of Jesus to others, I want to be the one who's communicating the love of Jesus. You know, uh, like the old song used to go, it only takes a spark to get a fire going. Uh, if we decide we're going to be that spiritual spark, who knows uh, how many people that we can end up touching and blessing. But understand, the other thing I, I always uh, get cautious about when the, the talk of revival goes on is God doesn't save en masse. He saves individuals. You know, it, just because we see a lot of people going forward at a particular event or we hear about a large amount of people coming to know the Lord in a certain part of the world, God sees those people as individuals. To, uh, but to as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. So, uh, you know, let's make sure we're on fire for the Lord. And uh, who knows how God can use just a single life that is committed to uh, burning for him. All right. Um, here's a question from Michael. He wants to know, would it be contradicting for a Christian to be a libertarian and a Christian at the same time? Since man is a free moral agent, wouldn't it make sense for a Christian to be a libertarian? More conservative, of course. I appreciate the caveat. Politics, uh, obviously two things you don't discuss in polite company is religion and politics because they're the only two things go. that matter. <laughs> um, when it comes to mankind's relationship with God, obviously it's matters of religion. But when it comes to mankind's relationship with each other, that is direct tied into politics. So I think this is an issue we need to be discussing. Now understand this broadcast is a Bible Q&A, so this answer is going to be centered around Scripture, but let me just make sure this is clear. When it comes to politics, our affiliation shouldn't be on buzzwords, sloganeering, or advertisement. The libertarian uh, descriptor of the party is no more meaningful than the Democrat or the Republican. Uh, most Democrats are totalitarian, not for democracy. Most Republicans are either 
holding towards democratic values but running on a separate party because their county is in line with those values, or they have a more conservative bent but not necessarily towards a representative republic. Also note as well, libertarians rarely run on anything specific, and this is where the biblical answer comes in. When it comes to a Christian's position in politics, and this is in the United States as well as anywhere else, if you have the opportunity to participate, it should not be on a slogan or an association, a tribalistic view. It should be on an issue-by-issue basis. And if you notice a trend that in one party or another, you don't see any of those issues being represented, you avoid them, not because they are evil, but because they aren't upholding what's good, the role of government. So here's the skinny of the matter. When it comes to issues that Christians, informed Christians, can't Uh, in good conscience support. Obviously, the rights of the unborn and the support of Israel are solid foundations to begin with. We can argue other issues like the right to life and self-preservation, but we can have that as well. Second Amendment stuff, that sort of thing. Uh, Freedom of speech as well. But when we're talking about religious liberties, if those are taken away, the gospel can and has still flourished. So note the point. If you want to elect a representative that stands for those values, understand that it has become a very modern trend. You do not find that in the Democratic Party as a rule. If you see individuals running with those things in support, then God bless them. May their tribe increase. I'd even vote for them if we could verify they will follow through on those campaign promises. Problem is the DNC, especially the United States, doesn't uphold either of those positions. In the Republican Party, we understand that both of those positions are sometimes presented, but that is also why you need to be an informed voter. If they support those issues, then the next step is to make sure that they follow through on them. My uh, my father here had a good conversation with our governor in Arizona, Doug Ducey, and he did, in fact, follow through on those promises. That's why we support him, not because of the R next to his name, because of the policies he upholds in supporting our ability to continue to share the gospel. Also note, uh, libertarians, again, you see any candidate in the Green Party, and it's rarely on anything other than uh, legalization of marijuana until the last 10 years. So make sure that if you're going to support a party, it's on a policy issue, not on a tribalistic or association issue. I understand the corruption or the compromise in the Republican Party or the outright insanity of the left party is going to make people just want to distance themselves and choose a third option. But understand that doesn't accomplish anything because guess where the 80% of the votes are going anyway? This is what we want to do. We want to be a force for good, not a force of distancing. We want to be involved in it being a positive influence. And if it can be done through political involvement and activism, then God bless you. Just make sure it's, as we see on the broadcast, biblically and on an issue-based informed. And that starts with, of course, the right to life and the support of Israel. Yeah, you know, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with an individual who feels called to invest themselves in the political process. We need uh, as many good people uh, many people that uh, reflect uh, Christian values as we can in the in these areas uh, of governance. But, you know, I, I think everything you said, Sean, was uh, right on. As I've mentioned, I am a registered independent, and that's for a number of reasons. Uh, first of all, it's my job to try to reach out with the love of Jesus Christ to as many people as possible. And if I get identified with one political party or the other, I'm going to lose the ability to reach either side. And so that's why 
I, I make those decisions. The second reason I'm a political independent is because I tend to be an issues voter rather than a uh, particular uh, party voter uh, because there are, uh, as we mentioned, uh, issues uh, that uh, I can't compromise on, uh, you know, especially being pro-life and pro-Israel. You know, people say, well, but doesn't that, uh, that make you a Republican? I want to tell you something. For years here in Arizona, one of the most virulently pro-abortion guys was the Republican congressman here. And he was just so entrenched that that's, that's really what you got. So, you know, I just make sure that I'm an informed voter, that I'm an issues-oriented voter. And those issues have to be infused and informed with scriptural priorities. And uh, like I say, uh, the non-negotiables for me are the support of Israel and being pro-life. Uh, I have others that are, well, important to me, but not what I would call deal breakers. They're, they're not certain, things we discuss cer- on cer- the broadcast. Certain things that, that um, would inform my vote or cause me to support one candidate over another uh, that uh, you know I don't think are as cut and dried in a scriptural sense. But all that being said, and what you said, Sean, I think is right on. It's this. It's almost like the conversation that comes up about church government. You know, there are people that will say, oh, man, uh, you, you, you got to be uh, pastorally led uh, in order to be have a right on church government. And Calvary chapels tend to be pastorally led. Uh, there are others who will say, no, no, no. Uh, you know, in, in the pastoral epistles, it does seem like they're elder led. So you got to be led by a board, by a board of elders that fit those scriptural qualifications. And others will say, oh, no, no, no. If you have a small board, those can be corrupted. So it's really good to be uh, congregationally led where everything's voted on by the, the congregation. Well, you know, I think you can make a scriptural case for the first two pastorally led and elder led congregationally led. Uh, I think uh, every time we see that in scripture, it tends to go to the lowest common denominator, not necessarily the most spiritual people uh, making uh, the calls there. But even with all of those things, even if you're talking about congregational rule, it's not the system that is going to guarantee you getting to God's will. It's the heart you bring to it that really matters. Uh, you can have a pastorally led Moses model uh, straight out of uh, Calvary distinctives. And if an individual has a heart that isn't faithful to the Lord, it's going to be a disaster. You can have a board of elders and you can have a board of elders that becomes ingrown and becomes sort of a uh, amen chorus for the, either the pastor or, or seeks to be suspicious of pastors and wants to keep them under their thumb. And, and all these things are going to end up not leading to a place where God's will gets done. Again, it's not the system. It's the heart you bring to the system that really matters. And so if we decide, you know, I want to be faithful, I want to be scriptural, I want to walk in truth and love uh, and uh, support a particular form of church government, that I think is going to keep us on track. If uh, we have that same kind of attitude towards our political decisions in a representative form of government like we have here. We realize that we're not here by accident, that God is the one who has set up government uh, to be a minister of his. We want to support righteousness. We want to turn away from unrighteousness. And, uh, and so I think if we bring that right heart to the conversation, I think we're going to be okay. 
All right. Um, here's a question from <laughs> oh. Kurt who wants to know, is it wrong to make a personal opinion against a fellow believer? He mentions an individual who was recently scandalized in sin coming to light, but he thinks he was still saved. Do you have takes on this? Uh, regarding, I guess, holding... I do. You, you want to hear my take on it? I'll, I'll just go for the jugular, you know, when in is doubt. Galatians 6.1? No, when in doubt, uh, go to what uh, Jesus said about all this. In Matthew chapter 7, he said, Judge not that you be not judged, for whatever judgment you judge will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Uh, you know, don't get me wrong here, Kurt. Uh, what I'm not saying is that we just be completely gullible. And if someone says, oh, yes, I'm a very godly individual, send me your money, uh, that we don't look into what they say or what they do or so on. But, you know, one of the things I've discovered is this. Uh, you know, I am dreadfully like other people. And sometimes the hypocrisy that uh, I see in others uh, will work against me in one of two ways. Usually this is how it works with me. Your mileage may vary. But the hypocrisy I see in others can work against me in a couple of ways in that if I get all hot and bothered over some luminary who has fallen from the faith, so I'm just focusing in on them, and I can't believe this guy. And, you know, I used to send him money, and he's just really, really like that. You know, the, the, the thing I've discovered is uh, while I'm directing my ire at this particular person's sins, I have a funny way of not dealing with the sins in my own heart. You know, it's easier for my fallen sinful nature to change the subject and point at somebody else than deal with what's going on uh, with me. The other thing I've discovered is this, and, um, you know, I'll just speak for myself personally. Sometimes the sins that I see in public people that drive me craziest are the ones that really probably are closer to home in my own heart than I'd like to give them credit for. And that's probably why I'm so upset. And so when I find myself just really, you know, kind of the smoke coming out of my ears over someone's uh, sinful behavior, I've kind of learned to take it as God's not so subtle tap on the shoulder to bring me back to uh, Psalm 139 and verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Now, if someone comes to me and they say, oh, you know, this ministry, they asked me for money and, you know, they said that I have way too much. They made me feel guilty. And so I sent them money. And now I find out that their leader is, uh, you know, living high on the hog. I just say, well, I think God revealed that to you because he wants you to be a better steward of your money. Don't get mad at these people, but use it as an opportunity to redirect towards a ministry that you're going to find is more trustworthy. You know, I think if we can use uh, even uh, the, the the scandal that uh, unfortunately is all too common in Christian circles to first of all cause me to evaluate myself and say, boy, I, I there for the grace of God go I. I have those same sort of things percolating in my own heart. You know, then, you know, God's going to keep me on a short leash and I'm not going to be another reason why non-believers can point uh, and say, oh, you don't want to be a Christian. Look at this guy over here. Uh, you know, the, the fact of the matter is um, we're all capable of, uh, of falling at any any uh, moment at all. And, you know, you, you mentioned Galatians 6, Sean. 
Yeah, uh, brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, notice not just sin, trespass, willfully involving themselves in sin, you who are spiritual, condemn, hold opinions against, no, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. I think that speaks for itself. Yeah, and Romans 14 says, who are you to judge another man's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Um, you know, I don't think on judgment day God's going to, call me over and say, hey, what do you think of this TV evangelist over here? I really need your input. <laughs> no, he's going to have it covered. You know, I, I think one of the greatest liberating days in my walk with God that has really uh, saved me a lot of wear and tear on my own soul, and, and I still have to fight it because I can easily fall back into this very, very easy, uh, was the, I think it was uh, John Corson who said that uh, God spoke to his heart and said, uh, Johnny, it's my job to judge them. It's your job to love them. Try not to get the two mixed up. And so I try to let God do what he's going to do. And I let uh, uh, my priority be loving people with the love that Jesus loved me. And uh, speaking of remembering our jobs, uh, three questions I want to knock out in the last three minutes we have. Um, first is regarding a question from Mac, who says he's felt guilty when reading the Bible. Is that conviction or a guilty conscience? No, I shouldn't live or that I'm always going to fall short. Uh, what's the difference between conviction and condemnation? Obviously, conviction should be a natural part of reading God's word. If you uh, hear from God and have him speaking to you and he says you're doing all right, then that's uh, not God. But if on the other hand, not a holy God anyway, but if on the other hand, we need to make sure we draw the line and saying, oh, I'll never be saved as opposed to, man, I need to get close to Jesus. Where's that line? Yeah. Well, I think we need to realize that uh, God does not condemn us. Romans 8, 1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And condemnation goes something like this. You blew it. You're always going to blow it. You might as well just eat worms and die. You know, that that's condemnation. Condemnation drives us away from God. That's the best way to understand whether you're being condemned or not. It drives you away from God, not to him for his mercy. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but for everyone who's in Christ Jesus, there is correction, Mac. Uh, you know, I, I love what uh, Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 11 says about this. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor let your heart detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, even as a father, the son in whom his heart delights. Hebrews chapter 12, uh, verses 5 and following goes into a lot more detail about this. But God will correct us. And if we're not corrected, well, then we don't belong to God. He's going to correct us along the way. But he corrects us like a loving father. Sometimes he has to get our attention in some pretty uh, uh, jolting ways, obviously. But uh, like a loving father, he's going to point out where we've gone wrong, but he's also going to come alongside of us and reaffirm that love. That's the difference between condemnation and correction. All right, and then Yari wants to know, uh, what's the age of accountability and aren't children basically good? Uh, Psalm 51 and verse 5 would soundly refute that belief. Understand, though, the way that God will hold them accountable to it will be based on whether they knew or were capable of knowing or not. Genesis 18 is always our fallback position. Will the judge of all the earth do what is right? Whether they're a teenager, child, or adult, they will be held accountable for what they knew, not what they did. God, God bless you. you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word. 
one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.